Hello, loyal listeners. On this episode, we had special guest Toby Elliott on to discuss the new IPG. Unfortunately, the information Toby was spitting out to us was a little bit too much for his microphone to handle. We tried to clear it up as best we could through editing, but some of his stuff comes through jarbled and a little difficult to understand. However, we felt it was still pretty understandable, and the information he was giving was well worth dealing with the issues of trying to understand what he was saying, so we left it all in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello, and welcome to JudgeCast. My name is CJ Schrader, Level 2 Judge, from Toronto, Georgia. <laughs> with me, sorry, I'm already laughing because you guys hated my intro last time so much, but... Duh. With me, as always, my co-host who brings the funk, Jess Dunks. Hello. Hello. Oh, no. I can tell you he ain't lying, Brian Brilliman. Okay, that's better. Hello. <laughs> and today we have a very special guest on, a North American exclusive, an interview with the man who will tell you it like it is, Toby Elliott. Good evening. Yay. Toby, it may be shocking, but there might be people out there who don't know who you are, so would you mind giving yourself a quick introduction? Hello, my name is Toby Elliott. I live out in Los Altos, California, where it's warm and sunny year-round and not in the sort of heinous, humid way like Florida. And I'm the level five judge in charge of tournament policy and making all the nasty quarter cases actually kind of vaguely work within the magic rules. <laughs> I would hope every judge out there would know that we have a new infraction procedure guide coming on, coming out, and we wanted to have Toby on to talk about all the changes. So... I think let's dive right in. There's there's a few newsish items that we're just going to post push off till next show. I'd like to dive right into this IPG so that we can get the maximum use out of Toby's time. So, Toby, let's start right at the big one. Missed triggers. Wait, we changed something? <laughs> Lapsing. I heard rumors. There was something on Twitter, I think. Oh, okay. Then it must be true. <laughs> yeah. Toby, would you like to talk about briefly like what what happened here? Sure. So fundamentally, we, we released a set of rules in March that um, detailed how to handle missed triggers. Um, many will remember them as lapsing abilities. Mm-hmm. They were to tr- they were to try to accomplish several goals that Watsi had, namely with the removal of maze from a lot of cards, except in non-strategic situations. And the idea that players really hated having to play for their opponent. Oh yeah, you just gained another life from your soul warden. You forgot again. Don't forget to gain the life. Yeah, you just get missed another one. And players were just just hated that. And it made for a kind of crappy experience at competitive tournaments. Competitive tournaments are supposed to be about awareness of the game state, among other things. And triggers are a pretty fundamental part of that. So back in March, we released a set of rules to try to make that sort of thing work. And for the most part, they worked pretty well. They accomplished some of our primary goals, like keeping the number of warnings from this trigger down, making it matter that you could forget your triggers and everything else. But it did have a few problems, which, you know, may have been joked about some online. Um, lapsing abilities were very complicated, and because Magic is such a rich, detailed game, there was no way that we could ever really assess sort of programmatically what triggers we wanted to not care and not care about. So we tried to find what we set out after March. We, we gave it, we gave it six months. We wanted to see what would happen, how things would shake out, what worked, what didn't. And then we convened a group of people, brilliant policy minds, all of them. I think there might be one on this call and um, started to talk about how to address the situation. And fundamentally, we we would have liked, ideally, to be less complicated because lapse and triggers were a lot to remember. 
And when we actually sat down and tried to write a more thorough lapsing policy, given what we had learned from the last six months, we were looking at, I think, 1,800, 1,900 words just for a mistriggers infraction. Um, that wasn't good. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't go down that route. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it was a possible route because it, it sort of did provide most of the answers. But, my God, there was a lot to memorize. I, I, love I think this. I would have called that route a lapse of judgment. <laughs> oh. I loved what I saw on Twitter that uh, I think you posted that you had removed about 800 words from the IPG. Yes, although that was all, the lapsing trigger is only about half of it. The other half yeah. was removing failure to reveal. Yep. But um, <laughs> anyway, back to lapsing abilities for a moment. So, so we basically started challenging fundamental assumptions, and one that we finally got around to was, well, does the penalty really have to be related to what actually happens in the game? That's that's a surprisingly fundamental aspect of tournaments. Um, everything in the IPG actually has that underlying it. So breaking that was not as easy as it sounds. Uh, we used to actually have a section for each infraction in the IPG called penalty. We got rid of it because it didn't mean anything because the penalty was always related to the infraction, the additional remedy. But we, 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 when we said, because we, we had most of this before, we had the idea that the opponent might be able to choose and we had the idea of various time frames, but we couldn't get past the idea that all these ones we wrote out have the opponent able to game whether their opponent could get a warning or not. And we really didn't want to get into a situation where an opponent had to think, is it more valuable for me that I let him have the trigger here or can I get him the warning that gives him the game loss? And we, players should not be metagaming penalties at all. It just, it, it's a horrible path to go down. So we, we had all this stuff and we said, okay, well, can we make this work? We said, well, what happens if we don't actually have the judge involved in the remedy at all? We just let the judge assess a penalty and then let the players figure out the rest. And we put that all together and ended up with something that looks largely like what you see there with a few tweaks here and there to improve the thing. So now we have a rule which is essentially the judge walks up to the table, issues a warning based on the nature of the trigger, whether it's a detrimental trigger or not, and doesn't do anything else himself or herself. They simply say, they turn to the opponent and say, okay, now that you guys have called it over, would you like that to go on the stack? And the opponent will say, I'd like that to go on the stack or no. And if they don't, then nothing else happens and the judge moves on. And it's really that simple. So it, it gets us a lot of what we wanted from the originals, but with a whole lot less words and a whole lot less to remember. So all, all we'd really need to do, like there's no forcing the trigger onto the stack or anything like that. If If the opponent wants it on, it goes on. If the opponent doesn't want it on, it doesn't go on, and that's about it. So if it was missed. Yeah, I mean, there's the, there's the exception for, like, cumulative upkeep, then it's happened. Uh-huh. That's a small corner exception. Basically, we say, you didn't do this thing, therefore you chose to do the other thing. Okay, yeah. Like, like and that's how policy was. If you, if you have an, uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, do this. If you don't do that, I believe policy, as long as I've been a judge, has said just do the do that part of it. Right. So, so this leaves me with a question about this new policy is if I am my, if I'm the opponent in this scenario and I see that you've missed trigger, I don't have to remind you, right? Like I could just let it go. I don't have to call a judge right then. That's your call. Basically you're calling the judge in order to make the trigger. Happier. So what if now I know this, you're, you're maybe not going to like me bringing this up, but what if it's, what if I know that it's more beneficial to have that trigger happen a little bit later in the turn? So I wait and then call a judge. Well, we, we, we cut down on the window for how long you could do that. It used to be a turn cycle, um, which was basically the same end of the same part of your next, your next turn or their next turn, depending on what it A slightly complicated definition and something players have to learn or judges have to learn. Place that with a turn, which is basically have we gone a turn around from where we were. So if it triggers during my up and we're now 
then it's past the turn. So we're, we're good. Nothing's going to happen. Um, that gives you a smaller window. We had a long, many, many long debates about the window because you could that have That was it. actually the longest, more, more about that than any other topic, I thought, sure. I, or it felt. Uh, we had lengthy debates because, you know, there's an argument made, well, you just give it to them immediately. And that works really well for avoiding the weird situations happening later where you just say, well, both of you missed it, move on. But that can lead to some real feel-bads. For example, I uncard and then attack with my guys. You start blocking them and say, hey, did you sack something to Eldrazi Monument? Well, no, but now I've, I had I had huge incentive not to because I might be able to sneak it past. And so something too short, put the incentive too heavily on players wanting to accidentally miss triggers, whereas putting something too long produced these situations where the trigger would be hanging around for much too long and suddenly like tokens were being created out of nowhere in the middle of opponents' turns or in a particularly good one, opponents could end up randomly with two combat steps, random stuff like that. Yeah, I like that one. So turn is the compromise we came up with. Um, it could get tweaked if we find that it needs to get shorter or longer, but I think it's probably a pretty good place to be. So is a turn defined as the same point in the phase, or one point in a, in a turn to the next point in the, the, the same point in the next turn? So, for example, if we are in the pre-combat main phase of my turn and I miss something, is a turn until the end of my turn, or is a turn until that same point in my opponent's next turn? Same point in your opponent's next turn. Okay. I know there's, there's some confusion about that. So. Yeah. Well, there's there's also a duration for triggers that have duration too, right? So it's not it's not just always you have within a turn, but there's also triggers that would last until say the end of turn. You know, if they if they've already expired or they would have already expired by the time you call over, then they're not going to be put on the stack. Yep. So that so, that helped. That helps the the same the the same issue with regard to gaming gaming the system. Okay, so what about things that that don't technically have an expiration but have a cleanup, like Geist of Saint Traft, right? It creates a token and then and then the token goes away. There is exiled at the beginning of the end step. Is that considered an expiration for the purpose of this this rule? Yeah, I, I think it's reasonable to consider that expiration. Um, okay. The tokens exist from the time of creation to end step, and now if you're past the end step, that token would already have been cleaned up. Okay, so it does include that kind of thing. Cool. So I guess this is just much less awkward all around than the lapsing triggers. So I'm really happy to see this this new policy in place. I'm I'm also a fan of this policy. I think it's just a lot easier. So the big topic, though in uh the emails and IRC and all that is is how do you tell if something is detrimental? So how do you tell if we should give a warning to the player if we're called over for the trigger? The first thing to stress here is this is not something worth worrying a lot about because it doesn't have an impact on the player. The only thing the only two the only two things it affects are whether you give a warning or not and whether you step in or not. So it's not going to do any absolute worst case scenario is that you give a guy a warning and point out that he missed triggers that he might not continue to miss afterwards. But those are triggers he was supposed to miss already, and you've just given him a warning. So it's not like, you know, suddenly he's in any immediate danger of a game loss or something. He's just now aware, yeah, this is a trigger you really need to pay attention to. So how do you, how do you define, Toby, if something is detrimental? Like, how do you how do you know when you look at a card? Roll a d6. No. Improperly determining a detrimental trigger. Improperly determining. A judge, I'd like to give you a warning for improperly determining if that trigger is detrimental. No. <laughs> Can you imagine? Players could give us warnings. <laughs> they can write us reviews, but that's 
another. Yeah, that is not at all the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I use the – is it bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Or no, it's not bad. Basically, um, some easy heuristics to ask yourself. First of all, why is this on the card? If this is on the card because it lets them co- make it cost less or it prevents some sort of shenanigan, that's a sign that's probably – if they're trying to box a player out, that's probably something that's detrimental. If I remove this from the card, would this still be good or would it make it better? Um, if, if you remove it and it makes the card better – Odds are pretty good it's detrimental. If you just ask those two questions, you'll probably get about 99% of them. Okay. Well, I I wanted to ask about a specific card in your DVD commentary, which uh, I'm sure we'll link in the show notes. Absolutely. You you used Rory Primadox as one of your examples, if I remember correctly. Is that that correct? Uh, You used that as an example of a detrimental trigger, right? Not only is it a detrimental trigger, it is a detrimental trigger in the course that's specifically to show new players, hey, look how easy to turn mental triggers into beneficial triggers. Isn't magic cool? Right, but my problem as a judge looking at that is is I actually would be less likely to play the card if it didn't have that trigger in a four-set green deck. A 4-4 four, four for 3 and G is pretty darn good. Sure, just, but it, I mean, the, it, because it has that trigger, it is a higher draft pick because of all the things that go with it in the core set. If you a set which was considered entirely of vanilla creatures, would you, play, would you like the trigger? Uh, I mean, no. I, I wouldn't like the trigger. So I understand it, but based on that, it's uh, probably a detrimental trigger. I just... It is a detrimental trigger. I guess I see your point there. Okay, I see your point. That they, in a vacuum, would it be a detrimental trigger is what you're getting at. Yeah, it's a, it's a trigger that is there to show that, yes, things can be done differently. But the, the trigger itself is a downside. you you got to return a resource from the battlefield. It's the fact that, that you might actually want to have that resource in your hand is what makes it such a cool trigger in the first place. But it doesn't mean it's not a detrimental trigger. It just means you've found good ways to turn it around to your advantage. I, I have a question about a different card you have on your DVD commentary. And it's not the one you think it's going to be. It's going to be Phylactery Lich. Ah, yes. Yeah. So let's say the trigger I'm talking about is when you control no permanents with phylactery counters on them, sacrifice phylactery lich. So let's say they destroy your your whatever with a phylactery counter on it. Shouldn't you at that point have missed infinite triggers because it's a state trigger and it's triggering infinitely and then you're missing it every time and you should get a game loss? Infinite warnings. <laughs> Upgrade. 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 Nice. I'm not letting you near my tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't upgrade that. No, don't upgrade oh. the state-based trigger. I think we need to go over state-based triggers one day. Have we ever done that? Uh, no, I don't, don't think not. we have. Huh, we have okay. not. Well, one day, not today. So, oh, you know, one thing we should say is that the infraction procedure guide, which is, has all this missed trigger policy, is used at competitive and professional rules enforcement level only. So, at your FNMs and pre-releases, this policy does not apply. If somebody missed the trigger, you, you we want the opponents to actually point them out because uh, FNM is supposed to be a little bit more fun, more casual, more fancy, fresh. Well, it's supposed to be for education of players, right? So, like, if I have, you know, if we have this in place at FNM, there are so many players that don't know the, anything about the IPG. They've never heard of a judge giving a warning. That it's When they mess something up, we don't want to come down on them and give them a warning. We want to explain to them how it's supposed to work, and we want to encourage the players to do this for each other. So I think regular REL is, is uh, you know, it's been formulated with that in mind. Toby can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but uh, I think that's why we use the IPG at competitive and professional only. Yeah. It also it also creates feel-bad moments when people are just learning the game and they go like a whole game or two or three or a whole evening and they don't realize how their card works and they just find out that, you know, that 
oh, that's what that means. And their opponents were just cheesing them out of, uh, cheesing them out of being able to do something or getting this cool functionality to their card. And that kind of turns players off. To summarize this mistrigger policy, which I think we talked about way faster. I mean, is there anything else to it? No, like, I think that, yeah. you know, I think if you have a lapse of certainty about this, you're doing it wrong. Was that I'm enough? not pushing too, too, too hard for that one. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make the same fun twice. <laughs> So, so let's, let me just ask real quick. Back previously, there was a card like Manic Vandal, okay, which had, you know, destroy, uh, destroys an artifact when it comes into play, and we had to take into consideration if my opponent has artifacts or, or not, or if I was the only person with artifacts. So, Miss Triggers, when we look at, let's say, symmetrical triggers or anything like that, Howling Mine or Sulfuric Vortex or something along those lines, we don't, we don't factor in. It's like, oh, well, if it, if it happens to the opponent, it's good, but if it happens to me, that's bad. There's none of that now anymore, right? Nope, nope. Although, I will note that it works pretty nicely because if you forget your braids trigger, well, your opponent's likely to call you on it, and if you forget my braids, or if you forget to remind me to do my braids trigger, well, that's your problem. It's your card. You're responsible for it. Yeah, I like that. All right. I'm going so to... how does that? So it works the same way, I'm assuming, with things like Howling Mine. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going to try to summarize the mist trigger policy. You're called over to a table. Basically, all you want to do is evaluate is the trigger detrimental or not, and while you're evaluating here is whether or not you're going to give a warning. This doesn't affect how you're actually going to proceed to correct it, just whether or not you're going to give an actual penalty, which will be a warning. So you evaluate whether or not it's detrimental. Then you ask the opponent, well, if it has a default action, you go ahead and do the default action, but otherwise you just ask the opponent if they want the trigger on the stack. And beyond that, oh, if it's been within a turn or within its own duration. And I think that's about it. Is that right? Did I miss something? Uh, I think think there's one more like thing that's implied by that but not stated explicitly the non-visual effect triggers like battle cry and stuff like that yes back in the in the in the ipg that's active right now not next week those still happened but it created like big problems where we're like oh well you didn't announce it oh but it happens anyway so now those are in here also you still have to you now have to announce Battle Cry and Exalted and stuff like that or give some sort of indication that it happened. Yes, and then that, that's actually kind of a, a big change, but it makes so it, sense too. It, well, so here's a question I have about that. If I, on turn one, play Noble Hierarch, and I attack with Noble Hierarch, and I say, I'm attacking for one, and you take one, and then three turns straight, I attack with Noble Hierarch, and then the next time I don't say anything. Are we going to assume I missed the, the exalted trigger there? Or do I, do I have to say it every single time? Or can I, can we assume at some point that there's precedent set? Sure. At some point, somebody's going to block. <laughs> That's a good point. I was trying to make a, a, a usable example though. No, we, you want them to make it clear that they're aware that triggers have, I mean, it, 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 the triggers have happened. Now, our barrier for this is not high. Uh, you, if you have a bunch of exalted guys, you swing and you just say exalted. That's probably efficient because obviously then what's going to happen is the two of you are going to work out exactly how many exalted triggers. We just want you to demonstrate that there's some awareness that it's happening. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. That should lead to hopefully a clear game state. It's not actually that big a change. If you look at like M12 draft, for example, you're looking at you now have to announce exalted triggers. You now have to announce that your Griffin protector got bigger. Okay. 
have to announce you're taking these combat step with Audric. That's it. Yeah. That was the entirety of non-visual effect in M13. The the other the other interesting change to this is that in, in all the trigger rules, there's no longer a mention of May triggers. So now I would guess that May triggers are kind of just treated like any other trigger, and if the opponent wants to, they can put them on the stack. Yeah, if they if they really want to, and then of course the other guy will say, "Okay, I choose not to use the ability," but there are some weird corners in which that's relevant. And I so just the phantasmal image restoration angel that you described in your uh, DVD commentary. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I assume a May trigger will never have- be detrimental. Yeah, I mean, 99.999 something percent of the time, a May trigger is just going to go poof and nobody's going to care. Right. I doubt we'll ever actually get called. Judge my opponent missed their May trigger. I can't see it happening. Yeah, I'm not, I will not lose sleep over it. <laughs> <laughs> you won't lose sleep over anything. Eating, I cry like a baby every night. <laughs> So let me let me ask. Uh, I guess on missed triggers, there was there's a, a sentence in uh, in the MTR in the section that was added for triggered abilities. At the very end, it says triggered abilities that are forgotten are not considered to have gone on the stack. And I and I was just curious as to I guess, I don't want to say why that sentence is there, but what problem is that sentence trying to solve or address? Off my head, I don't know. That's in the IPG. Uh, no, it's in the MTR. Ah, okay. Um, why would that be in the MTR? I don't know. It probably just got put in there to prevent somebody arguing about it. Okay. I don't, I don't, off the top of my head, of any reason that forestalls anything. So, all right. Yeah, I don't think it's a good enough for me. <laughs> yeah, that works. All right. So we want we wanted to put you on the spot here, and I am on. I am looking up random magic cards, and I'm going to tell you their triggers, and you tell me whether or not they are beneficial or detrimental, okay. whether or not you would give a warning or step in if you were sitting there. Sure. The first card that came up randomly is Cradle Guard, which has some abilities, but most relevantly it has Echo. Echo, Echo doesn't matter because Echo is covered by the um, if, you did, if You Don't Clause. Yes, perfect. Brian added one, which feels like cheating because that's not random, <laughs> but we will throw it at you. Clockwork Hydra, which reads, whatever Clockwork... Hydra attacks or blocks, remove a plus one, plus one counter from it. If you do, Clockwork Hydra deals one damage to target creature or player. This is mean, Brian. It's random. <laughs> random. That's, for- <laughs> That's a really good one. I mean, like I said, it's, it's detrimental because it's making your guy smaller. Yeah. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> Is actually not a very good one because it's Rock's Charger who has Exalted, but we just talked about Exalted. Well, well, we didn't talk about whether or not it's beneficial or detrimental. I think it's kind of obvious. Yeah, it's obviously not detrimental. Yeah. All right. This next one's a little more interesting. Cyclops Gladiator, which reads, Whenever Cyclops Gladiator attacks, you may have a deal damage equal to its power to target creature defending player controls. If you do, that can, that creature deals damage equal to its power to Cyclops Gladiator. Oh, that seems sweet. Yeah, that seems like a sweet ability. I don't think you could argue that that was uh, detrimental. Prism Wake Marrow, which is a two and a blue flash. When Prism Wake Marrow enters the battlefield, target permanent becomes the color or colors of your choice until end of turn. Yeah, seems beneficial to me. I think the point of this exercise is this policy, like, it's really easy. A lot of people are making it kind of a big hubbub about... You know, how do I know if something's detrimental? How not? And very rarely do you actually find a card that doesn't just straight up. It's not obvious. 
like in your DVD commentary, you say there's only four cards in all of M13 that are detrimental. Yep. That you would give a warning for. All right. Well, I guess we'll move on to other yeah. bits of policy. So, yeah, what else changed in the IPG? Numbers. <laughs> yes. The section numbers. The whole section, the whole thing was renumbered, but, uh, says here, Toby, you removed failure to reveal. Why would you do such a thing? That's crazy. Why? <laughs> Why would you right, do that? It would be crazy if we did that. All we really did is it was pointed, I think it was Kaya Federowitz who pointed out that all the failure to reveal section was was a simple application of the morph upgrade, which was the idea that you've committed, you've committed a play where the opponent cannot verify the legality. Mm-hmm. And that was really the only thing that was special about failure to reveal. Well, if that's all that's special, why don't we just stick it in with the morph upgrade and just say any game player that causes you to be unable to verify the legality gets this upgrade? That would replace the entire infraction. And that makes a lot of sense. So how do we... Um, previously, there was a downgrade option with, uh, with failure to reveal if the card was uniquely identifiable. Is this, is this still a thing that we can do? Yeah, we had a, that sentence was left intact as part of, of game rule violation. Yeah, it's, it's now, oh, okay. it's now do not, uh, do not up, or an error that opponents can't verify the legality of should have its penalty upgraded, and then blah, blah, blah. If they, if it was in a uniquely identifiable position, do not upgrade. So. Okay. I guess they did, I guess they did reverse it from don't, uh, you, you know, do downgrade it if it was uniquely identifiable to if it is uniquely identifiable, don't upgrade. So the next thing that was removed was the, uh, the concept of a turn cycle, which was replaced for the much simpler concept of a turn. I think I, I think we already discussed that. Yeah. Triggers though. But it's, um, yeah, but it's, re- it's removed everywhere, which the only other place I know it was used off the top of my head was the GRV um, partial fix you could do. If something ended up in the wrong zone and had been within a turn cycle, you could put it back in the proper place without doing a full rewind. Uh, now the time limit for that would be a turn. That was the only other location, which is why it got removed. Okay. Easy it's enough. Cool. It's, it's cool to keep those in sync. Yeah, I like uh, that. You don't have to – because also uh, with missed triggers, they, there's that whole, you know, the three-quarter – you know, the, the thirds of a turn is gone. So oh, you don't yeah. have to – so it's, it's everything's just it's a turn now. I forgot about that. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Over the six months of lapsing abilities, I never once had to give a missed trigger until this past weekend after this IPG had already come out. I actually had to handle a couple of them, and I was like, man, why couldn't the new IPG be out already or be in effect? The goal is to make policy as simple as possible. And turn cycle, once you get it down to just being one part of one small infraction, doesn't pull its weight in terms of making somebody learn it just for the sake of that. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite changes in the new, this is in the, in the IPG. I couldn't remember if it was in the MTR or the IPG, but it's uh, that you allow some cards to be in the deck box that are, that we don't consider part of the sideboard. Cause previously, if we do a deck check on a player and they have any cards in the deck box that could conceivably be played with the deck and they didn't present their sideboard, we're going to consider those cards as part of the sideboard. So a lot of players got random uh, deck deckless problems, game losses because of this. So I really like this change. So the kinds of cards that we can have in the sideboard now are a double-faced card. If the player already has the checklist for that card in their deck, you can have a night side of a double face card if the player already has the day side of the double face card in their deck. 
And then also my personal favorite, you can have promotional cards that were given out during that event. So like if you go to a Grand Prix, everyone's given a promotional card. And I know we've had big issues in the past where people just throw it in their deck box because why wouldn't you? But if the card's playable, it could be a really big issue. Yeah. This, yeah. That, that's a, that's a, that's a feel bad, that's a feel bad moment right that's there where you're like, bad. you're playing, you're playing a black green deck and it's like, oh look, Maelstrom Pulse is the promo card for this GP. Sweet. Goblin God. Sweet. I, I don't have anywhere to put it. I'll put it in my box until I can sell it to the vendors. Uh oh, deck check. Oh no. Yeah. I really like these changes. I, I don't, oh, the, the IPG does mention though that the, the cards have to be in different sleeves in the deck. Which I think is fair. Toby, I assume you have nothing to add to that. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Yep, pretty much. Yep. But I really like it. I, I really like that change. So the last thing is, I had just learned about two weeks ago that the documents actually came out on a set schedule, which was the 20th every three months. And then you went up and changed it. So now the documents come out in a different way. How, how do they come out now, Toby? Well, you didn't like living in blissful ignorance? I I just learned it, and now I don't know again. It's, it's much simpler now. They they come out with the sets. So it'll still be four times a year. Mm-hmm. It'll be approximately three months apart, but they'll come out with the um uh, the sets pre-release, uh, the Monday after the pre-release. Well, I guess that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Just a bit. Just a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that they came out on the 20th. I knew it was every three months, but I thought it was times to be near the pre-release actually already. So I didn't know that uh that there was change to get closer. So I think that's a really good thing to have. Especially with you know a lot of judges they're a lot of judges their only time to do anything is during the pre-release. So I think it's a good time to disseminate that information to, to newer judges. Well this here's, another, here's a fun advantage for you. Because of the timing of pre-release and release it comes into effect on release day, at release time. There are no GPs in that period, so we will never have a GP running under a outdated tournament rules. It also means that it'll never come out on a weekend, so we'll have no GPs that theoretically change rules in between days. Yeah, that's beneficial. There was, that there was is that a thing that's happened? Yes. What, what's oh, that's so awkward. We have to issue a proclamation that says the IPG is in effect for the whole thing or not in effect till the Monday. That actually happened with um, CP Atlanta, I believe it was. Yeah, Lantax. Lantax. It's just legal, legal on uh, illegal on Saturday, illegal on Sunday. <laughs> what? I have I have uh, a question about a uh, a new section in the uh, in the MTR. Um, I think I think uh, you were involved in one of the the incidences that uh, that might have spawned it, uh, dealing with video coverage. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's there's a there's a new section talking about video coverage and the roles of the the coverage team that they're essentially spectators. Uh, and then it talks about spectators are, are also permitted to record matches, provided that they do so unobtrusively. But then the last sentence in there is, because of the inherent delays in using video replay, judges are not permitted to uh, to use it to assist in making rulings during a match. Now, there was an incident, actually two, in uh, uh, some high-profile events, uh, one of which you were head judge of, was it Pro Tour? Honolulu. Honolulu. And, uh, and then there was, uh, another one that, uh, Ricardo, uh, Tessitore, uh, was involved in. So did, did those two events or the, or the perception of what happened with those events factor into that statement? 
because uh, it seems like video was used for Honolulu somewhat. Yeah, it it, it didn't. It it's sort of factored in. Um, the fundamental problem here is that the technology is not nearly as advanced as people think. People think we can just magically wave our hands and have an instant access to video replay. The reality is that it's probably a 25 minute delay before we can get hold of things. And once we start down this path. Which, you know, has certain advantages, no question, where we start using video to review plays, then anybody who doesn't like a call in any situation where they're on camera, and it doesn't have to be on camera at a pro tour, this can be on camera during a random uh, GP feature match or an SCG live or something, they don't like the answer, they're going to be like, well, why don't you go to the tape? And if the judge says, no, we're not going to go to the tape, well, then the judge is the bad guy there. So given the complexities and the problems of going to tape, um, and how much delay and disruption it will cost the tournament if you do, we, we put that in to protect the judges there and let the judge, you know, the judges will say, I will not go to tape because of policy rather than getting accused of not going to tape because of some bias or some other problem. And that, because I'm realistic. He wouldn't go to the tape because he hates me. A lot of the time, it's not real to go to the tape most of the time. And he, actually, it's not realistic ever, but every once in a while we had made exception and discovered it, it's really pretty hairy at the moment. So no. if there's ever a lockout and we ha- and the TOs have to get scab judges, will we maybe issue like a, an immediate reversal of this so that the players could have their – trying to make a bad football joke and it's not working. Not Harvard. working at all. <laughs> Never mind. Just abort. I'm going to abort on that. I would love for the day where it becomes simple and easy for us to go to the tape. Um, in that situation, if it was super fast, we would definitely revisit it. But given the time constraints and everything else, it's just not something we want judges having to deal with at the moment. I am very glad that that is the case because I, I really don't want to have to deal with it. You know, the first time I'm at an event where there's there's video, I, I don't want to have to figure the whole process out of, well, how do, how do I go to the tape? So I'm, I'm really glad that we don't have to worry about it. Cause that, that is a, I guess the, the whole thing about protecting the judges and the judge not being the bad guy by saying no. I mean, there's, there's a, there is one of the, one of the points of the documents are is if the judge is always following the document, then that also protects the judge from any accusation of, of being unfair because it's always, I'm doing this in accordance with policy. It's not me that you're having an issue with. It's this document. <laughs> This nameless, faceless committee that is Toby Elliott. You have a problem with Toby. <laughs> yeah, just point Toby. Don't blame Toby. I'll pull bullets for the judge program. I've done it before. <laughs> it's just like uh, Mark Rosewater has to take all the flack for every design change, even if he wasn't on the set. Brian, I'm glad you brought up the MTR, though. See, what? I was gonna say this. See, this is this is why Toby really doesn't want to come to my release because <laughs> because he's afraid that every time there's a problem, I'm just gonna send players to him. Yeah, you don't like the policy? Go talk to that guy. <laughs> so you're glad I brought up the MTR? Yes, eh? because we uh, we should mention that Burning Wish effective October 1st, which is when all this stuff we're talking about is effective. Burning Wish is unrestricted and vintage for all you vintage players out there. But more relevantly, Valakut the Molten Pinnacle is unbanned in modern. Weren't we just talking about that in the last episode? We were. In fact, we called it, didn't we, Jess? That that was going to be unbanned? I think I, I think I actually may have said something about that. Of course, I may also have said something like, nah, they'll never do that. I don't remember which of these it is. <laughs> well, I'm going to well, have about... to go to the tape to make this judgment go. <laughs> well, how about this? We'll just have a CJ here pull that clip from last week's episode and insert it into this conversation right here that we're having right now. All right. 
hey, wouldn't it be cool if they unbanned Valakut? <laughs> I yeah, I, I see what totally. you guys did, and maybe maybe Very. Burning Wish too. <laughs> maybe if Toby could chime in and destroy the illusion that we favorite. recorded this in the Just past. I really don't think we're fooling anybody. No, we're not. But I appreciate I don't have to go back and actually bring up the clip now. Because <laughs> we were wrong. We were, yeah, we, we were, were like... I think I actually said, they're not going to do that. <laughs> the most interesting thing to me about all these changes that we have is that these decisions get made. You know, who is it that... You know, we know these new documents come out every three months, but... Who is it that's making the decisions that changes these documents, and how do they come to those decisions? And obviously, Toby, you're one of these people, but you don't have the sole say in how all of that works. So who all gets together to do this? Well, it, it, it happens in a bunch of different ways. The first thing is that I get I get a lot of email. Having having a single face as sort of the face of policy really helps in terms of when somebody wants to gripe about the fact that, you know, say, actually in the latest document, they have somebody they can email about that. And so I'll get, you know, five five or so emails a week with people saying, hey, I think I have this really cool improvement for the documents. You should think about it. And a lot of those are just very simple, common sense stuff. And so I'll just make a note of it. And when it comes time to revise the next version, we'll incorporate that. Then you have a lot of situations where the level three list and the judge list, both somebody raises an interesting topic and gets a file, and those get filed away until time comes to new version. We talk about those, and those get incorporated. And same with the level four list. The actual physical process that it goes through is that I, I, I take all these things, I sort of coalesce them, and I write up what I believe the correct answer that was the general consensus from the various lists was, and I put the level four list as the proposed IPG for this quarter. And they take a look at the points and they, it's all, you know, track change word documents and everything. And they take a look and they debate and we figure out and make sure, yeah, this is in fact what we want. While this is going on, Scott Larrabee is basically doing the same thing with the MTR. I will send him any relevant tweaks that have come up during my harvest back emails for IPG changes. He goes through, he figures out what needs to change in the MTR, makes those changes and presents that to the level fours as well. And you look at that document and make sure there's nothing egregious there. At that point, they're basically ready. Uh, with a little bit of luck, they go out a couple of days in advance to the translators. Um, it's a little tight with the MTR because, of course, there is information in the MTR which is very sensitive, namely the ban lists. So that often doesn't go out until the actual announcement has been made. But the IPG doesn't usually contain anything controversial, so it can come, sometimes go out a couple of days earlier to the translators. We we get the the basic the base bottom line here is that we get ideas from all over the place, and I gather them together, and then we talk about them. And every once in a while, if some big big topic comes up, for example, triggers, I'll grab a bunch of people who've expressed interest or who have demonstrated like coherent thought about the policy in the past, and I'll say, hey, let's get together and talk about triggers, and we'll exchange a whole bunch of emails until we come up with something we like, which is where the new trigger policy came from. And Brian can probably talk about what that looked like from the other end because he was involved. Tell us, Brian. What? what? It was a lot. It was a lot of emails, a lot of really long emails. Um, so it would it would be basically someone would uh, – I think it started off with – uh, Toby saying these are these are the guidelines uh, uh, or these are the problems that we want to solve, and then uh, it was done in uh, like Google, not Google Docs, but like Google Groups, and it just started spawning off different threads where people were starting to discuss uh, uh, different topics, and there was I think seven or eight people on the group, and 
change. I mean, there was there was just a whole lot of discussion. Uh, a lot of people uh, were exp- were very passionate about certain aspects. So it was it was very interesting. I learned a lot about you know the depth at which some of the 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 level threes think about stuff because I'm I'm my my thought is my thought is you know suggest something and then you know maybe bounce it around and see if it makes sense that kind of thing but i learned it wasn't to the depth that some of these guys did because they went to like i've been judging for 10 years and i've seen this scenario this scenario this scenario and it was very very impressive watching that and seeing that and i didn't necessarily agree with all the points and you know kind of made it known when i when i did and didn't uh but it was it was a good learning experience. Uh, I hope I added something. And uh, and then at the end, uh, there were two policies, like two possible paths. So he was like, okay, this is this is what what uh where we're kind of going. It's either this way or this way. A fork in the road, you know, you know, turn to page ten if you want this, you know, determination of detrimental triggers, or turn to page fifty if you <laughs> want a, some sort of continuation of lapsing triggers. And if you turn to page fifty, well, you died at the end of the page. <laughs> Yeah. And a brick falls on you and you die. Luckily, I always keep my finger wedged yeah. in the previous choice. Wow. Remind me not to read any choose your own adventure books with Toby around. <laughs> <laughs> there was, there was one choose your own adventure book I remember. It was like page 100. It had the good ending, but there was no page that sent you to page 100. Ah. That's so like, funny. If you were one of the people that like found the good ending and then tried to reverse engineer your way back. Since this is what we're talking about now, I got yeah, uh, is- I got one called War with the Evil Power Master that my wife got me for Christmas last year. And I've looked through it at every ending, and the best possible ending I could find was one where you assemble a fleet of people and they go save the day and you recover in a hospital. That was the best possible ending. Is at least the evil power master is destroyed. But hey, anyway, anyone have any more policy stuff they want to bring up? I mean, I think that's all the major points. No, I think we've covered almost everything. Great. So, Toby, I want to thank you very much for being on. My pleasure. We're uh, we're gonna skip doing the mailbag this time because we want to get this IPG episode out as quickly as possible and have it very focused. Uh, do you have any ways that you would like people to contact you, like Twitter? No, my easiest way to get hold of me, I mean, yes, they can get me through Twitter or through IRC on the Judge channels. Um, and my email is in the Judge Center, so mm-hmm. you can get there, no problem. What is your Twitter name? Uh, Toby Elliott. Toby Elliott, oh, easy enough. Well, Toby, I want to thank you very two much. For two L's, two T's. Two L's, two T's. What happened there? <laughs> we... we so I spoke over each other. I, I just wanted to thank Toby for coming on and talking about all this stuff because I know you're busy. So I, I just it means a lot to us and our listeners to have you on board. Yeah, happy to be. So if you listeners out there want to email us, you could you could email us triggers and we'll tell you if they're detrimental or not. I bet we could nail them all. And if not, we'll just ask Toby on IRC and then take the credit. You can email us at judgecast at gmail dot com. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash judgecast, and you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash judgecast. Anyone have anything last minute they want to throw in? No. (laughs) (laughs) I have nothing. All right. Well, for everyone here at JudgeCast, thank you all for listening. My name is CJ Schrader. I keep it fun. I'm Jess Dunks. I keep it fair. I'm Brian Prilliman. I keep it under two hours. (laughs) Are you going to use the same one every time? 
I don't know. I keep it pithy? I don't know. <laughs> you guys took the good ones. I got to be flexible here. Why aren't they answering? Because they're lame and weak. So glad we don't do this live. Trollby Elliot. Trollby Elliot. It's like everybody in L.A. is a 16-year-old girl that just got their license. Tell you what, if you need to come back and record voiceover bits, let me know. Just send me a script. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, don't do that. It'll be like, CJ is awesome. I will recommend him for L3. Yes. <laughs> got there.